Premium Hoops presents Sense and Scalability. Sense and Scalability. Welcome back, you friggin' nerds, you basketball nerds. Yeah, you like this podcast, yeah. How you doing, Evan? I'm doing great, Scott. Um, I don't know if you were going to mention it, if Cody was going to mention it, or if I should, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, My pregame ritual today was especially special. Um, You know, I I started cleaning and reorganizing my desk, which then turns into a reorganization of the room. So that's going to happen later. Um, It's 7.21 p.m. on Saturday, and I just drank like 16 ounces of coffee, so or maybe 24. I don't know. Who's Who's counting? Um, so it's going to be a long night. Um, and then we had a little roller coaster tour before this, which was a great time. We all virtually rode a, a roller coaster together, which was it, it slapped. So today's off to a, a fantastic start, and I'm really excited for today's episode. Yes, I was telling the boys that I hope I get vaccinated in time for when Lake Compounds in Bristol, Connecticut opens. It's actually right next door to ESPN, which is probably how many people know that town. Boulder Dash is the ride that I want to ride. It goes through the woods. And I was telling him how much of a, you know, engineering marvel this ride is. So we all had to watch the point of view video on YouTube. Um, Cody, how you doing? Yeah, I have to say I'm a noted not roller coaster guy. I really don't appreciate being upside down against my will ever. Uh, and I also don't appreciate heights. But I have to say that watching that video is oddly calming. Just the the journey through the woods and the point of view there was was fantastic so thank you for uh bestowing that vision upon us oh you're definitely welcome you know i tell anybody who will listen about uh boulder dash the wooden coaster please leave a comment if you've ridden it so we can talk about it um but that will be it for roller coaster talk as much as i'd like to continue um and we're going to talk about basketball as we often do this time about defense and how to evaluate it and the shapes and sizes and ways it comes in. Cody, you just wanted, you were, could not wait to have this podcast because it's been a long pet peeve of yours, how people talk about defense. Yeah, this has been an idea for an article that I've had for months now. I've been trying to put it together. I don't know what angle I want to take it at. So I was just, I pitched it to you two and I said, Hey, I just want to talk about defense. I want to talk about the way that we evaluate and talk about it. So this is hopefully going to be a good space selfishly for me to explore it. So I can hopefully write about it in the future. But a big thing that annoys me, and I I don't want to be coming at anyone that, that says these sorts of things because we're all guilty of it. I find myself falling back onto some of these cliches, but when people talk about defense, they say things like so-and-so is a plus defender or he's great off ball. He's a great secondary rim protector, but like what does any of this mean? And how many times are you actually in a conversation with someone when they're like, yeah, so-and-so is a negative defender. That almost never happens unless you're talking about Bradley Beal or Trey Young. And even if you bring up Bradley Beal, people are like, ah, oh, but you should see how much he's working on offense. So it's totally okay. So as far as I'm concerned, there is no such thing as a below average defender in the league by the way we talk about it. And that's just where I want to go. How do we evaluate it? And how do we put all of this information into some sort of mental calculus so that we can determine how valuable a player actually is on defense? So that's the basis of where I'm coming from today. And I think a lot of that requires us to look deeper on how different schemes actually work, what certain players are doing for certain schemes. There are certain players that like you can easily tell they're a good defender. You look at Rudy Gobert, LeBron James, uh, Giannis. You could tell watching them play. That's a good defender. He's making life more difficult, very obviously, impacting the game on and off ball. So, most guys aren't that good, and that's when it gets tricky to find try to identify the contributors. I think yeah. even guys like uh, Rudy Gobert, too, it gets really tricky because when you start diving into some of the numbers, like some of the uh, really available public rim protection numbers, you start seeing guys like Hassan Whiteside pop up. And then you might start thinking, wait a second, so is Hassan Whiteside actually equal to Rudy Gobert? And then you remember back like four or three years ago or whatever, you remember Rudy Gobert being cooked out on the perimeter by Stephen Curry. So you're like, oh, Gobert's this slow-footed center just like Hassan Whiteside. Why are people freaking out about Rudy Gobert? He's basically unplayable in the playoffs. And then you just kind of... I don't know, because even when you talk about some of these big-level players, you're still not 100% sure what what you're talking about. Yeah, and I think like you know, it's pretty it's generally pretty easy to see when a guy is just really really good on defense or when a guy is just getting targeted and cooked like uh you know, constantly getting targeted and constantly getting sent to the shadow realm every time he does have to defend on ball. 
or off ball as the case may be. But um, the really interesting bits are in the middle. And I think what makes this so complex of a discussion is that, you know, and it's a discussion we've had about offense too, but I think specifically it's even more impactful in defense is just the limitations of the box score and what we have in terms of data at this point. So, you know, we've come a long way in terms of availability of tracking data. And I think that especially has helped with determination of the impact of rim protection, especially, but um, you know, it's still pretty difficult to, to kind of quantify holistically um, what a guy's defensive impact is, um, whether it be on ball or off ball. And so we rely a lot on eye tests and eye tests can't always be reliable, especially you know, if we, if we don't always know what we're looking for. So hopefully we can kind of uh, hammer out some solid criteria for how we evaluate defense and uh, you know, what that means to us. And so it's really not that much different than evaluating offense in some ways. Like we are talking about Mikhail Bridges and on offense, we're not really like too worried if he can't beat a guy off the dribble and get to the rim at will. That's just not his particular role in offense. And defense kind of works that way too, where it's like, I'm not necessarily worried if Patrick Beverly can't r- rotate weak side and block a shot. That's not specifically his assignment. And I think B-Ball Index does that really well. They have seven different uh, defensive roles on their website, ranging from point of attack uh, and chaser, which are usually guard specific. Point point of attack uh, basically means you're the you're the head of the snake. Um, you're the first. You're the first defender the offense sees when the opposing guard is, you know, running that pick and roll. You're going to fight through that big man screen. You're going to try to make it as hard for them as possible. Um, Chaser, more of a guy who like off ball, you know, you got to say you got JJ Redick running around screens. That's the guy who's supposed to lock and trail and, um, you know, mitigate any advantages created there. And then you have helpers, which it can be a guard or a wing as defined by B-ball index and, pretty self-explanatory um just not really focused on stopping their man as much as they are stopping um their teammates men because usually those are the guys uh who usually the guys they're they're guarding are not going to really create that much for themselves um then you have the wing stoppers uh wing there uh, and these you know are mostly uh, they're tasked with guarding the big scoring wings you see, you know, in deep playoffs rounds. And sometimes people elevate this skill set in those situations. Like, you know, there's a whole thing about a LeBron stopper and maybe that's overblown, but like, it is important to have a guy that size who can kind of mirror his movements. Um, and then there's perimeter, big, uh, mobile, big and anchor big, which is kind of that go bear white side archetype. Um, so that pretty much covers most defensive roles. You see, sometimes you can like blend the two. I think, some guy like Robert Covington got him in early this week. Uh, blends kind of that helper archetype and that uh, you know perimeter big archetype because he provides not only that help defense um, on the perimeter but also at the rim. And uh, I think all these guys can be dropped into this buck into these buckets or two or three of these buckets typically. Yeah, and I think as we work through this, uh, the listeners will kind of see that um, the, these archetypes uh, are, are really helpful for classifying how what skill sets players possess and how they can be best used. But y- these archetypes are, are less meaningful and less impactful in terms of your assessment of a player's impact. Um, if you don't know the responsibilities of the scheme, especially the rotational res- responsibilities um, that are given to that player, depending on who they're playing and, and uh, the other kind of... Um, contextual elements of each game. So um, where do you guys want to start in terms of working through these defensive responsibilities? I actually have a question based off of what you just said there and the fact that you want to evaluate defenders based on the situations that they're in. Is it possible and is or is it just completely uh, folly for us to try and say that this is how a player would be on a league average defense? Should we just say this is contextualized specifically for what this player's role is on defense? Or do you think we're actually able to be like, this is how they're playing this specific role and this is how they'd be able to translate into other roles? That's a really good question. And I think I would lean towards kind of... um adding that bit of nuance to defensive discussion. Like I, I don't generally like the the argument or the discussion around dropping a guy with his specific skill set into like quote unquote a league average defense because like what scheme is that league average defense playing? Who are the, the other personnel in that league average defense? I think um, in general, my assessments are, are very much skill-based and context-based and it's difficult to kind of judge, you know, what, what a player may or may not be good at 
um, in another context. And, and that's what the fun about scouting and player assessment is, right, is kind of figuring out um, what skills and, and mentality elements kind of um, lend a player the ability to be portable across different different situations. And, and that's kind of the fun of that skills-based analysis. So I would lean towards kind of uh, shying away from any any discussions of dropping someone into a league average defense, but that's just my my take on the situation. When team building, I think a lot of people tend to favor like, oh, this guy and this guy would be a great offensive fit, but you kind of have to think of defensive synergies in the same way. Um, how is a guy's teammate allowing him to focus on his strengths and not focus on his weaknesses? Um, a lot of the same kind of lines of thinking are at play. I want to start with like point of attack defenders. I think this is kind of somewhat of a debate um, on NBA Twitter and other places. Like, what is the value of point of attack defense in a nutshell? Just because we hear players and coaches say, like, Avery Bradley is this fearsome defender, but the numbers and the, you know, defensive real plus minus or what have you don't really bear that out all the time. Uh, he's not doing much to affect the game when he's not guarding ball. It's just when he's guarding ball, he can be quite the nuisance. So how how do you guys square point of attack when uh, trying to figure out, let's say, how much you should value it? I think it's a good question because this is one of those threshold examples in in some ways to me. Um, Once you meet a certain threshold of capability as a point of attack defender, and you're reliable, um, you know, pushing the player you're guarding, generally an initiator of some type, um, one direction or the other, fighting over screens consistently and and trying to take as much time off the clock and blowing up that first action as you can. That's great. Um, but I think it is definitely a skill set where returns are somewhat diminishing. Um, I think as you once you hit that threshold and maybe just get a bit above that threshold of utility, um, the value of a point of attack player of a point of attack defender um, becomes a little less important just because you know how much more valuable is um, is a player who can better fight over screens who can better push the the primary initiator one way or the other um, I think a lot of that can be fixed up by scheme if you as long as you meet those initial thresholds like you're not getting you're not just dying on the screen every time okay we can work with that if you're dying on the screen every time that's a problem so um, scheme can kind of help you leverage any perceived weaknesses with your point of attack defense in some ways, but you definitely have to meet a bare minimum there in terms of your capability handling screens, especially, I think. And I think also what's interesting when you talk about it not being super portable is that if you're a point of attack defender, there's only one player on the court that has the ball at one time. So your strengths are really only going to be showcasing at the time that the player has the ball. So if you're a great point of attack defender and you offer nothing with secondary rim protection, and you offer nothing with deflections and off ball uh, defense, you're not really going to make an impact besides in those certain instances. And especially nowadays, if you are getting consistent minutes in the NBA as a guard, you more than likely will probably be able to stay in front of most other guards. Because if you're just getting blown by all the time, you're just not going to find consistent minutes. So I think it's really hard to just to find that point. Like how much better is a really good point of attack defender? How much better is Eric Bledsoe than say a league average point of attack defender? And does that actually change the scoreboard as much as you know you don't necessarily want to focus on results, but is a results driven league? Uh, how much more of an impact? is someone like Eric Bledsoe going to have on that? Yeah, and I think kind of what makes that assessment difficult is that it's hard to quantify that impact given the current box work, box score, kind of like we touched on before, right? So like the point of attack defender, you know, there there's not without, you know, some kind of more advanced tracking stats, a really good way to judge, you know, nobody's really tracking in the common stats databases how hard you fight over screens and how many times you die on them, right? So, like, even a ratio of that would be super helpful for judging point-of-attack defense impact and when that re- that leads to points. Generally, the stats that kind of feed into these these defensive metrics are, are events creation stats like steal percentage and block percentage. Um, and, frankly, unless you're really, really good at fighting over that screen and making, you know, kind of attempts at a dig or something like that while you do it, um, you're, you're not frequently going to be getting steals in those, in those kinds of situations. And so um, currently I think maybe the way that we measure these impact metrics kind of lacks in that area. I don't necessarily have like a better way to, to measure that without super intense uh, play tagging or anything like that. But just to say like, 
if there is an impact there in terms of points kept off the board, it would be tough to measure as currently stated. Now, that said, um, given the the kind of salience of those events and kind of the effect, you know, generally when you watch enough ball, kind of this is where eye test has to kind of take over. Um, even if a guy doesn't fight over the screen, you know, you still have time on the back end to save those save that half court possession, you know, make, make a rotation or, or even if your scheme calls for it, you can switch that action and then you don't have to fight over the screen so hard. And so, um, it's really tough to kind of measure that impact right now, but, um, the currently, currently the position I take on it is that point of attack defense is good and super helpful and something you definitely need, especially at, at a bare minimum, um, especially in the regular season and, and the early rounds of the playoffs for sure, but it becomes less important as the games become more important. And so um, it's not something I super highly value as long as I'm um, crowdsourcing that among my team or, or uh, it capable of handling different scenarios, different ways. And I think this also brings in, you know, we mentioned Eric Bledsoe in his team context on the Bucks, his point of attack defense was elevated because uh, when he was there, they were so insistent on playing over and drop defense and in order to kind of help close that bubble of space in the mid range that they would give up, uh, Eric Bledsoe had to, you know, make some rear view plays, had to uh, lock and trail around screen. So even if he wasn't uh, fighting over it, he would eventually get back in the play. So that's a situation where, you know, maybe point of attack isn't super valuable, but maybe it becomes more valuable if you play a certain scheme um, that accentuates it. Now, I think why Bledsoe is such a good defender is he doesn't need point of attack defense to be effective. You know, we saw him kind of roam off ball sometimes uh, when George Hill was playing point of attack. Uh, he's comfortable switching. So to think that Eric Bledsoe is, you know, an uh, all NBA defender because of point of attack is kind of misleading. No, I think that's true. And also just the way that he was able to do uh, perform his point of attack defensive duties kind of shows the fact that, you know, defenders aren't necessarily keeping their the offensive player in front of them all the time. Like you just said with the with the Bucks, Bledsoe wasn't supposed to keep his guy in front of him. Obviously he was, but that's just not possible at the NBA level. Everyone is going to get blown by at some point and screens are too good that you can't completely dodge them. And so you have to do this chasing sort of uh, aspect of it, like you just said. And so, you know, that's another, I, I would almost say, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Falsehood that's put about it is that people can't get blown by on the perimeter. But, you know, that's just not the focus of the defense all the time. It doesn't matter if Eric Bledsoe gets blown by on that because he's supposed to recover in those sorts of situations. Yeah. And, you know, defense really, it's a shot clock league and it's only 24 seconds you have for each possession. You know, you take probably uh, three, four, five seconds to get up the court. And so how long can you keep the defense at bay? How long can you, can you hold off before the blow by occurs or you get put into rotation? Um, it's not sexy, but you know, if you take seven seconds off the shot clock, defending that initial screen action, you put your defense in a really good position to get a stop with the rest because you're blowing up that initial action and the offense is going to have to flex into something different. Um, maybe something they're not as comfortable with, or maybe somebody you know, the offensive players aren't all on the same page there. And so, um, the chance of a stop becomes greater, but how much greater does that actually become? It, I think it, it really depends. And, um, these pick these really strong point of attack defenders can kind of get schemed out of the game by the offense too. And so like you guys touched on, you know, depending on scheme um, and depending on uh, the opposition's goals in that possession or in that game, um, it's really important that these point of attack defenders have something else to offer ideally off ball. Otherwise, um, you know, they can be schemed out in a way that makes their impact a lot less than it is in general. And we're not even sure how, how high that impact level is as of right now. I like the idea about uh, looking at the shot clock and how much time you're able to get off. Now, like we've said it multiple times, we're going to keep reiterating it. A lot of these players we're going to talk about today are really strong in multiple areas of defense, but somebody that really mucks up that point of attack full court is TJ McConnell. And he's excellent off ball. He gets a ton of deflections and whatnot, but he's pretty much the only player that I can think of that is consistently picking up players full court. And not only does it take precious seconds off the shot clock, but if you think about having to go and do a routine thing, if you're dribbling the ball off the court as a point guard, you can start running through the sets in your head. You're like, okay, this is something I've done a million times. This is going to go this way. This is going to go this way. But when you have someone hounding you that is so good at getting steals, that's just going to throw you off just a little bit more. When you can get into somebody's head, not in a smack-talking sort of sense, but get into somebody's head where they have to start being a lot more aware of what they're doing, it's going to make what they're doing so much more difficult. But once again, what we're talking about is like kind of like a 
not theoretical, but like a psychological level that's really, really hard to quantify, which is, you know, the crux of this entire conversation. But you know, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that that's not valuable, but it's not uh, Rudy Gobert protecting the rim valuable. So the next roles I kind of discussed were more off ball, whether it's chasing shooters around, whether it's uh, playing help defense. And we kind of talked about how we think point of attack defense a lot of time might be overrated. Uh, this might be a skill set is that is underrated just because it's harder to track, but oftentimes it matters if a guy is like a second earlier um, to closing out uh, after recovering or something like that. And I really um, have grown to appreciate those kind of really smart off ball wing defenders. And I think and, a, a point of uh, on ball or uh, sorry, off ball defense that I think it, it's getting mentioned more and more, um, but I don't, I still don't think it's up to up to speed and up to the kind of recognition that it deserves. Um, one of the most valuable things about off ball defense to me, and I'm somebody who values um, a strong exterior shell. So you ideally don't put as much pressure on your rim protector, um, especially at the rim in those most valuable areas. Uh, a lot of what off ball defense is valued to me is also on offense because th- this is where you're creating those events. You know, you're getting those those steals, the uh, picking off those passes in the lanes, and a lot of times these lead to like easy runouts on the other end. And so, not only are they salient defensive moments where that that shell stays strong and um, you're not allowing easy attempts at the rim, but also you have a chance to create an, a really easy bucket on the other end. This is um, a point in. <coughs> Jim Boylan's scheme that actually worked really well for the Bulls last year. Um, the blitz was kind of gimmicky in the sense that they probably shouldn't have used it all the time, but uh, their defensive rating and, and their defensive performance was many times buoyed by the easy shots they were creating via those those steals when they created that pressure on the ball handler. And so off-ball defense is something that I super highly value, um, and it's kind of one of the reasons why I like the idea of building a team that's switchable with reasonably similar-sized guys that are strong and versatile and you know maybe anywhere from 6'6 to 6'9". Um, that's something I really like the idea of. Now, actually, the question of pulling that off in the NBA is is very difficult. Um, but yeah, I, I think off ball defense is something that's starting to kind of get starting to kind of get its flowers the way it should be discussed. And I'm looking at the way that they define uh, what is it called helper right now. And the exact definition from B ball index is a guard or wing helps away from his matchup both on drives and at the rim. And this is actually something that. I don't want to come at B-Ball Index because I really, really like this site. And I think everyone should subscribe to them because they have uh, great content. But it seems like that those two are being equivocated, whereas that's just not the case. Like off-ball perimeter defense, to me, is a lot less valuable than off-ball rim protection defense, where you're able to slide over and cover for your actual rim protector that stepped away. And it seems like all of that is being lumped into this sort of level, whereas, you know, that's just not the case. For instance... Guy we were just talking about, TJ McConnell, gets a ton of deflections during the game. Uh, tremendous off-ball defender. You can't pass it around him because he'll jump up and swat at it, but he's just not big enough to go and protect the rim. Whereas somebody like Giannis, for instance, is a tremendous rim protector off-ball, uh, but they would still both kind of be lumped into that same helper category. But yes, in general, I agree with you. I think off-ball defense is extraordinarily valuable uh, when it comes to talking about perimeter defenders. You kind of mentioned, Cody, how it's a big difference between affecting things off ball at the rim and on the perimeter. Um, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I, I think it also has to do with scheme. Now, usually most often the rim will be the most important place to defend. That's just basketball. But I do think in defenses like Evan was talking about, where there's more of a effort to preserve the shell and not allow that penetration to the rim. That's when we see kind of the Mikhail Bridges, Jason Tatum types really thrive because they can uh, prevent that. De- uh, they can prevent that driver from getting downhill in the first place. I think something that I'm going to push back on right now is this idea that you want to have a shell made up of players like that. Because Scott, you just said two players that are both excellent at defense in Mikhail Bridges and Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum especially off ball just because the the Sun system has him playing so much more on ball. But the point of having a really strong rim protector, being able to uh, funnel everything to that singular defensive force, is that there just are not enough good functional defensive players on the perimeter that can do all of those things while also being functional offensive players. And I, I sort of think when I'm looking around the league, I'm like, I don't know if you can actually 
if you can build that team, you're going to have the best team in the NBA of functional offensive players that can do those sort of switching schemes. So do you think I'm wrong? Do you think that we're trending towards a place where uh, the defensive shells are going to be built of these players? Because I am not convinced of that. I'm not even referring to switching, though. I'm just talking about uh, Xing out, uh, sinking and filling, and not necessarily being like a fearsome presence or Robert Covington. There he is again at the rim, but like just recovering, you know, um, I don't think it has to be switching. I think there, there's other ways to preserve a defensive shell, even if it's just zoning up. Yeah, switching is probably the most like, it's probably the furthest end of that spectrum that we would discuss. And that would be great if you could switch every action and have have your team um, be able to handle that um, and handle those matchups in a way that you're not allowing points due to mismatch. It, it, it's tough for sure. And it, it's definitely an ideological kind of thing, right? Um to some extent, I think my desire for this kind of scheme is is predicated on the idea that um, as the youth players who came through watching guys like Kevin Durant or guys like, God, I don't even know, just the, the variety of versatile wings who do more than just like, you know, play the four or play the two, you know, they, they switch anywhere between those two through four and position basketball, positionless basketball has really taken hold. Um, I, I'm hoping that we get more of those players in the future because these skill sets are so, um, so highly desired. Um, but right now I, I would have to agree, like it would be tough to build an ideal scheme where you can switch everything like that. And if you can, just like you said, it, it's highly likely that your, your offense is going to need some help from somebody who's probably heliocentric because basically the, the closest idea that I think think um, any team has gotten to this and been competitive in the recent past is probably the Houston Rockets. And you saw that those players were useful on offense. The players that surrounded James Harden were useful on offense, but only at a very specific context where they weren't asked to do too much. And so, yes, they could handle the defensive responsibility of switching like that. But like you said, there are trade-offs on the offensive end and, and it's tough unless you have somebody who can generally who's generational and who can kind of clean up those uh, those gaps. And I think another difference is the guys who are mostly helping on the perimeter can be valuable, but oftentimes they are cosmetic to the defense. And what I mean by that is they don't meaningfully often alter what coverages you can throw at a team. Um, a guy like, you know, Matisse Thibel isn't allowing you to, isn't unlocking a bunch of coverages. He's just basically the, the appeal of him is he's getting more high level defensive plays per hundred possessions than the average, you know, wing helper slash on ball defender, you know, he can kind of do it all and helps you in that way. But the guys who allow, who are able to slide in as wing rim protectors, uh, allow more scheme versatility. Um, if you have a limited center. So for example, I look at the, the blazers, um, and they're able to send Enos Cantor high up on the pick because they have guys who can rotate weak side. They have wings who can do that. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's kind of comparing apples to oranges. Uh, you could say that guys who allow you to scheme versatility are inherently uh, more helpful, but I don't think that takes away from how helpful guys can be who can uh, just be a little bit better at closing gaps on the perimeter um, through rotations and off-ball smarts. So we haven't even scratched the surface for evaluating off-ball defense, in my opinion. We've just kind of debated the different types of it and how valuable they are. Um, something I've an analogy I've used for evaluating off-ball defense is how often is a guy making the right rotation in a scripted scheme and how often is he making an, what I consider, because it's all subjective, kind of a, you know, improvisational uh, scrambling read. So I think of a guy like Romeo Langford, who is really good at making the scripted reads at IU and there were situations where he just couldn't quite diagnose the threat and assess it in real time, like in transition or something like that. And that made me think that he is a guy who really relies on that pattern recognition is not always great when thrown into a new situation. Um, a guy who I've been really impressed defensively with uh, is Franz Wagner on Michigan, because not only, you know, because there might be plays where Romeo makes the correct rotation and everyone's like, that's a good defender. But where Franz kind of differentiates himself is there's going to be a play where Michigan's has its back against the wall and it's all the defense is all kind of out of whack. And Franz will just make, you know, a quick decisive read. I kind of call that walking, whereas understanding the scripted reads is crawling. Uh, you know, you need to know how to crawl before you can walk. Here's looking at you, Michael Porter Jr. Um, 
but once you have that base knowledge and able to follow the script, then you can kind of work off it and make unscripted reads. And that's, that's what I look out for. Yeah. And I like that you touched on Romeo Langford at IU and specifically kind of the pattern recognition element of him and the way he learned, he handled those sequential learnings of kind of the, uh, the sequence of events of, of a normal rotation and, and the requirements that, that Langford had in those situations, right? He could, he could easily order those, those, um, sequences of events in a way that he could know his responsibility once it got to a certain point in rotation. Um, but like you said, he wasn't a guy who was going to make those high level um, off ball reads when there's, there's chaos occurring that bailed the defense out and give them a chance to, to stop the offense from scoring. I love that you touched on uh, Franz Wagner there because I think he's done a great job of this. And uh, I think another guy who, who we both had really high last year um, in, on our draft boards um, for probably similar reasons is Devin Vassell um, and his off-ball genius. Not only was he capable of handling his, his, the walking element of your analogy, you know, those, those um, kind of predetermined schematic rotations and those decisions that were placed in, in uh, were made easier, I guess, for him through um, the scheme and the coaching. Um, but he could also bail your defense out and, and have those moments of like sheer brilliance where he sees something that even uh, you rewinding three times might not see right away. Um, and I think that speaks to the difficulty in learning that pattern recognition. Um, those The sequential events are great um, because they give you kind of a template to work off of, but you need to see a, a diverse variety of off-ball experiences to kind of be able to quickly predict and action um, your, your kind of solution when things get crazy and you just have to bail the defense out. So uh, those high-level players, it, it, I think you can develop that for sure. But like Scott said, I, I think it's nice to have that when somebody's coming into the league. And and specifically, I, I think so because the more players you have on court who who need to learn to crawl before they walk, um, the messier, the sloppier the defensive context is and the less predictable things become. And so having more players on the court who you trust to make the right read and trust to make those rotations, you know, the bare minimum, I guess, of knowing your, your coach's scheme and your defensive rotation scheme um, really improves that defe- developmental context for the rest of the guys who might still need to learn to crawl first because they can be comfortable knowing that the other pieces are in place for them where they just have to do their job and not have to kind of um, galaxy brain the variety of chaos that could occur um, with a, maybe a worse developmental context with more guys who aren't savvy off-ball players. So when I really like this idea of like, oh, here uh, we need a player that's supposed that's going to be able to go off script and kind of blow things up whenever he kind of has the feel to do that. And obviously you need a lot of repetitions to do that. But I wrote back, I think it was a game back in like uh, late February when the Lakers were playing against the Trailblazers and LeBron, while he's still he's lost a step. So obviously his point of attack, his isolation defense is a lot worse. He completely blew up this play that the Trailblazers were running. Uh, so he's off ball and I'm, I'm trying to watch this right now and narrate what's going on. But Lillard goes into the corner and obviously their Trailblazers are down 13, uh, seven minutes left. The Lakers don't want Lillard to get hot, so they send a double to him, leaving Covington wide open at the top of the of, of the arc, right? So LeBron leaves this guy, Derek Jones Jr., in the corner to completely go and smother Covington. And when he closes out on him, he closes out really, really aggressively because he knows Covington's not going to be able to dribble past him because that's not Covington's game. Covington's going to try and get it back to Lillard. And once Covington does give it back to Lillard and Lillard has Caruso on an island, LeBron knows that Lillard might be able to get an inch of space on Caruso to get that uh, step back three. So LeBron comes over, he helps and completely shuts that down. And before Lillard can get the pass over to the open uh, Covington, LeBron's back there again, effectively forcing them to take like a 30-foot three-pointer after all of that action. And so that's a great example of just kind of freestyling, going out there and being like, okay, I know this player can't really drive very well. I'm going to close out aggressively. Okay, I know Lillard's move. I'm going to help over and stop him and get back to my man before he can make that pass. And so that that sort of mind, it's almost like the same sorts of players that are really, really good at making brilliant reads are also good at making those kinds of reads on defense. And I think that's the sort of thing we're looking at when it's non-rim protecting defense. And I think that's a perfect example that you just touched on because it, you have to have, you have to factor so many different things in when you're making those kinds of decisions, right? Like this is, you have to have the spatial awareness to know where everybody is. You have to have a knowledge of the sense of pressure and, and comfortability with that pressure to know that you can leave your man and double pressure the ball. Um, you have to know your personnel subconsciously to know that like Covington isn't going to quickly get rid of that because he's not used to that kind of pressure, not used to that kind of read. Um, 
and and at the same time as all this, like you have to have the kind of proprioception to know how long it's going to take you to to get over to the defender or to the offensive player that you're double pressuring. Um, and LeBron is a perfect example of this because he, he's a genius. And I love that you specifically mentioned too that um, these skills can be can be kind of reflective of those same skills on the offensive end. Like frequently players that are, are adept at picking apart defenses um, because they know how things will, will work out in terms of rotation and, and what's going to be coming their way um, are frequently often good, good um, defenders in the sense that they can know exactly when that risk versus reward is worth it and can quickly action that decision to make the def- or the offense have a tough time um, with their own half court possession. Yeah, and that's why uh, kind of a philosophy I and many others have had is when you're trying to project a guy's defense, is he making or do you see glimpses of this offensive feel, even if it hasn't translated to defense? And does he have kind of the length to activate it on defense? Um, So I don't think that like Ben Simmons or Lonzo Ball were maybe um, touted as like (laughs) generational defenders in the draft but I think they're on their way to becoming that um, just because they their offense hasn't quite worked on all the same levels it did at lower levels. So, you know, they think, how can I best affect winning? And oftentimes for them, that's on defense. And a really promising um, observation, I think that myself and many others have, have made so far this season is um, – how LaMelo Ball has played on defense, especially gambling in those lanes and, and kind of rotating in advance, just seeing the game at another level for a player so young. And I'm glad that it's happened this way because I think it, it's um, exemplary of what we were talking about before and, and the way that offensive feel translate to, translates to defensive feel because just like you said, he has the length. So you were willing to bet that if the instincts were there, that something functional was going to happen. Now, LaMelo still has uh, some gripes, you know, to be made about his defensive ability so far. Um, I think sometimes he falls asleep and sometimes he's just not quite strong enough to handle those bigger wings or those stronger, um, the stronger guards. But there have been flashes there already of some really brilliant defensive play. And if a coach can, you know, actualize that skill set in a way where the risk reward balance is good in terms of when he's gambling and when he's not, that's a weapon that can really create some easy looks on the other end. And so he's going to be creating points, not just from his highly advanced feel and passing ability and and the ability to score for himself as well, but um, he's going to be creating easy looks for himself and his teammates on runouts when he, when he gambles in the lane and gets those steals. And I think another guy who I'm kind of earmarking for this um, projection is LaMelo's teammate, PJ Washington. Now I think everyone was more enthused about his offense um, than his defense, his rookie year, and certainly showed like some high processing speed, uh, especially in the short role in situations like that. And when you consider that and his length, um, I just have no reason not to buy PJ Washington as like a good defender long-term, even if it's not quite there yet. I love PJ Washington. I'm really glad you brought him up. And I think what makes PJ so special is not just that he kind of has that defensive feel, which I think is uh, emblematic of kind of his offensive feel as well. Like you said, the quick processing speed in the short roll is a pretty good indicator that he's willing to make quick decisions and that he's seeing things quickly and actioning those things quickly. But um, he's also very versatile. And I like that the Hornets have played him more at the five this year because um, it gives them a different look and it gives them some versatility in handling small ball lineups. Um, I don't think PJ's quite up to speed in his handling of uh, like stronger forwards at the rim and stuff like that, but uh, he really didn't get a whole lot of reps at center last year. And so I'm glad that they're giving him this opportunity in the regular season, just because it's like, what's the worst that can happen? Like, I I think he can do it. He has the body to do it. He has the athleticism to do it and he has the brain to do it. So give him some reps, let him figure it out. And even if it's not a look that you go to like later on in the playoffs or when games really matter, um, I think the experience of being in those positions where he's like thinking from a big point of view will help him even as a wing defender and I don't have really specific takes on PJ Washington uh, right now beyond what you all just said but I I completely agree with that I really don't like seeing people being pulled from games when they make defensive mistakes because I think you have to make those defensive mistakes you have to be put uh, you have to be thrown into the fire to try and figure a way through it you have to see a lot of different uh you know, offensive sets throughout your career. And if you're not able to explore that, maybe try something here that's not going to work. Maybe try something here that's not going to work. But regardless, you're not able to always watch film and be like, all right, so this is what I'm supposed to do because no two plays are ever going to play out exactly the same way. So yeah, I agree with you there. 
So I think uh, that's a good transition to big man defense, which is we kind of covered that with PJ, but uh, you know, there's obviously comes in a bunch of shapes and sizes. And as I mentioned earlier, I think this is often the most impactful, not only because the rim is uh, sacred ground, but also because who your big man is often informs what defensive coverages you can play. You, you know, you see a guy like uh, I, I scouted Evan Mobley, for example, and boy, oh boy, can you play pretty much any defensive coverage with that guy? Maybe you don't want to do a deep drop because he doesn't exactly have the girth of, you know, some of the deep drop bigs we see in the NBA, but blitzing, you know, hedging, switching, I, I, I see it all with him. And uh, I think that's kind of uh, what we saw in the playoffs too with Bam and AD is just like, it's really helpful just to have as many looks as possible to throw at the offense because you're going to be exposed to a bunch of different situations. And teams have handled this in different ways from a roster construction standpoint. Like not everybody's lucky enough, obviously, uh, to land a big with the versatility of an Evan Mobley or even like the a big with the versatility of an Onyeka Okongwu, which I'm leaning a lot more into my draft assessment of him and not so much into um, my assessment of his play so far this year, which has been pretty rough, um, granted with like kind of limited opportunity, I would say. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's really nice to have those guys who can play any scheme because you can you can keep their their offensive contributions, especially on the floor at all times. Whereas teams that kind of have to crowdsource these different um, defensive capabilities, I'm looking at like Boston, for example. And Scott, you can talk much more about that than I can. Um, Boston has kind of tried to build a stable of bigs who do different things. And frequently I, I watch them play and I'm thinking like, boy, it'd be great if we could just combine all of these guys into one player um, and, and keep that same player on the court at all times. I think that big that I'd like to to combine all of those abilities into would be Robert Williams because I think he gives them something on the offensive end of the floor that I think they don't get from the other guys. But Scott, I specifically would love to hear your thoughts on kind of um, the the differences and the, the pros and cons of um, kind of having either one guy who you can, who can kind of do a little bit of everything or kind of having to, um, to crowdsource that a little bit more, um, which is a, th- a problem I think more teams have than, than anything, because those, those kind of unicorn bigs are still really, really rare. And one of the alleys that the Boston Celtics crowdsourcing has taken them down is uh, we don't necessarily love, you know, Thompson or Tice, as a rim protector, as a drop big. So oftentimes they will go up in the pick and roll, like kind of a soft hedge. And the other one will actually have to rotate weak side to protect the rim. I think that's why we've seen a lot more Thompson and Tice minutes than we expected. Um, Just because Brad, I guess, feels a little bit more confident having one of them rotate weak side than Tatum, who's good at it, but it's not like his main job description. Um, And so that's a situation where uh, you're throwing two bigs or, you know, one of those guys in Grant Williams, or you have to keep Tatum on the floor or something like that, or you have to, you know, keep smart around there to uphold the shell or something like that, where um, because the bigs can't inherently buoy the scheme, um, you have to make sacrifices elsewhere um, to get two of them on the court or get defensive minded players on the court more. And I think your your focus on kind of the sacrifices you have to make is a really good direction to go with this because the way I often think about specific specifically like deep drop, um, I compare it a lot to heliocentrism on the offensive end. And so like just like heliocentrism is, heliocentrism is to creation for me, uh, deep drop is to rim protection. So like you have to have a really good offensive creator to run a heliocentric scheme. And similarly, you have to have a really, really good rim protector to run deep drop because you're going to be putting a lot of pressure on this guy, especially if you don't have point of attack defenders who can consistently fight over the screen and and force those tough decisions and force those uh, tough handling moments. So you're putting a lot of pressure on, on one guy who's probably generational to buoy the impact of the rest of the unit. And I think it works pretty well for the most part, especially if you have a guy like Rudy Gobert. But this is kind of why I prefer a strong shell of perimeter players um, with kind of role versatility, some switchability and intelligent play recognition, um, especially when it comes to patterns in space, because I think it's great to take shots away at the rim. But if, if you know, especially like bigger wings, scoring wings who can handle um, are getting two feet in the point in, in the paint you're putting a lot of pressure on the rim, even if you're handling it well a lot of the time. And um, 
it's tough, I think, to kind of to balance those things, especially when um, maybe traditionally those deeper drop centers, uh, you know, take something away on the offensive end of the court. Um, yeah, you're you're giving up two points at that end, and you better hope you're scoring three at the other end because um, it, it can be tough to balance that from a mathematical standpoint. So um, I think later in the playoffs, it, it could be tough to rely on those rim protectors because teams can scheme ways to avoid scoring there because you know, if you're making it deep in the playoffs, you probably have a big wing creator who's going to get, or you, you're more likely to have a big wing creator who's going to get two feet in the paint and be able to hit that pull-up mid-range. And so the shots that a deep drop rim protector is willing to give up, those mid-range pull-ups um, suddenly become much more valuable. You've done a great job of describing how the Bucks specifically ran defense last year. And this is actually part of the conversation that was really difficult to wrap my head around last year because I never conceived of Brook Lopez being a defensive player of the year type of candidate. And last year, I thought definitively he was, at least like in the top five, top six candidates. Obviously, Giannis won it, and he definitely should have. But when you looked at some of Brook Lopez's numbers, he was defending so many shots at the rim, and he was doing so at a historic rate. I mean, players shooting against him were absurdly low. Like, if you go back the last seven years, I think the only other person that did it better than he did was Giannis that same year. And he did it, you know... He contested like three times fewer shots each game than Brooke did. But that's a very highly specific situation that Brooke was in is when you have a drop defense and that is exactly what you're going to run only. He is a fantastic defender and same with his brother, Robin Lopez. He's another fantastic uh, rim protecting drop defender. And that's just what the Bucks ran when Brooke wasn't in the game. Robin was in the game and they did it and they were all very, very good at it. But then you saw when you run into a team like Miami, that's not necessarily predicating their offense on always getting to the rim. It can be a little bit of a buzzsaw. And I think you're exactly right. And I think we collectively kind of came into the season a little bit more skeptical of drop coverage just because the Bucks had one of the greatest defensive seasons ever followed by such a uh, pathetic defensive showcase in the playoffs. And even a team with like the high end defensive talent of the Bucks, you know, have had their trials and tribulations with running that deep drop and teams without that kind of personnel are really struggling with that deep drop from what I've seen. Like, uh, I think Phoenix does a really good job of it and they're a little bit more versatile, but like a, a, I watch a lot of Bulls games and the drop has been really rough to watch this year um, to the point where Wendell Carter Jr., who I think is like really a, a, a good defender um, and honestly pretty versatile, more versatile than even I gave him credit for when I scouted him in the draft, has really struggled with the rim protection element just because it's like, yeah, I think he's a very good rim protector, but um, the the guards can't lock and trail like Bledsoe does. And so like, especially Kobe White just dies on the screen every time. And so you're putting so much pressure on him to contest at the rim. Um, so, and maybe he's contesting the original shot attempt well, but like uh, a lot of times guys will make that read that Wendell is going to go for the block and, and they're going to make the dump off. And we don't have the help defense there to kind of take care of that. On the other end, uh, it puts a lot of foul pressure on your bigs too, especially if they're you know not technically uh, adept with kind of the the principles of verticality yet. Um, you know, if they're facing a lot of, of shot opportunities and they have to contest those, you're probably going to be racking up the fouls a lot more simply just by the way rate statistics work. And so, um, drop I think is a little bit going out of style. I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but. Uh, I think drop is going a little bit out of style in a, in the sense of it being a, a base scheme that you can constantly rely on deep into into the playoffs. Um, now, I do think it is like a pretty good base scheme in the sense that it, it's pretty easy to teach and pretty easy to read. Guys know their responsibilities well. And if you have kind of the physicality and the know-how, um, it, it's easier, I think, to find personnel for drop than it is for a lot of other schemes. But yeah, I, I do have some gripes with some teams who have instituted drop um, recently and I think uh, it just shows that while it works well for some teams, it doesn't work well for everybody. And that's why versatility is so important. I think on the other side of the coin is that uh, I'm looking specifically at the Lakers and the Heat, two of the best defenses in the NBA right now. Um, the Lakers, Anthony Davis has missed a substantial amount of time now. And last I checked, which was only like a week ago or so when he missed you know, I'm not going to try and cite it off the top of my head, but he missed a substantial number of games. Their defense actually improved in games when he didn't play. I was also diving to some of Miami's numbers last night even, so this is pretty recent. And the Miami Heat's defense is actually better when Butler and Olenek are on the court and Bam's off the court than when Butler and Bam are on the court without Olenek. And 
there's just sort of weirdness because we we all know that Anthony Davis and Bam Adebayo are fantastic defenders. But when you look, they don't quite have the same number of rim contests as somebody like Rudy Gobert, as somebody like Brooke Lopez, as somebody like Robin Lopez when he gets more minutes. And so I'm starting to wonder, I'm like, are some of these regular season's numbers, uh, to borrow a, a Mark Schindlerism, are they a mirage? Are they kind of lying to us? Is this experimentation and lack of defensive results actually kind of reflecting of the fact that they're more playoff-style defensive players? And so that's something that I've been trying to wrap my head around right now, and I don't really have solid... what am I trying to say? Qu- quantitative evidence to back this up, but it's at least a theory that I'm starting to to pay attention a little bit more to. And I think that's why we saw the Jazz gear up so much on offense um, after kind of realizing the drop. While maybe the demise was overblown against the Rockets, it was there and was worse. So I think what they've done, um, like I've said, like you said with heliocentrism, Evan, you get the guy who is really responsible for the offense, let you focus on defense elsewhere. Jazz have really focused on offense elsewhere. And I think their idea now is Gobert is less the identity and more of the floor raiser that lets them do all the other stuff on offense. So if, you know, Kawhi or whomever is hitting a mid range against them, they're, they're going to say, okay, we expect that, but we want to have a good enough offense to punch back. And I think maybe that's why that's an area that the Milwaukee bucks uh, didn't quite have. And so that's why I'm, Excited to see how the Jazz respond to when teams are able to exploit drop coverage. Are they going to be able to fight back uh, now that they've really revamped their offense, uh, replacing favors for Bojan? It's kind of my theory that a lot of teams' identity is hinges on who plays power forward for them, and I think that's the case here. I love the the kind of uh, comparison of the Bucks versus the Jazz because they fixed a similar problem in two very different ways, uh, just like you touched on. So the Bucks were heavily relying on drop and they've tried to fix that this year by acquiring personnel who can play different schemes and kind of uh, testing the waters and exploring the studio space of, of kind of uh, different different schem- schematic choices uh, on defense and, and a little bit more defensive versatility there. Whereas like you, like you just touched on, the Jazz have, have totally decided to fix that a different way. They're still playing drop because they know that Rudy Gobert is someone they can trust there who can raise that floor. And because of that, they don't have to worry so much about the other players that they put around him on defense and have decided to kind of stack the cards on the offensive side um, instead. And so um, I think the Jazz have done really well this season, um, especially in the regular season, obviously, that we've all touched on you know multiple times because the Jazz are great. And the Bucks have have kind of, uh, I guess, not not fulfilled people's expectations thus far, but for good reason. And so the Bucks might, I'm kind of starting to workshop a theory that maybe the Bucks would be a, a kind of a sneaky com- contender this year in the playoffs. And, and maybe the Jazz uh, are a little bit more expected just because um, the Bucks have been kind of hanging out in the background, working working on things and not drawing too much attention to themselves because um, they're, they're, they're trying things that they're not used to, and it's it's making results look worse. But they always know, I think, that they can go back to that drop coverage if they need to. And so uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the playoffs play out. And I mean, if these two teams played each other in the finals, I think that would be phenomenal to watch. You just revitalized me. You just pumped energy straight into my heart saying that you think the Milwaukee Bucks are a sneaky contender right now that I I cannot describe to you how nice it is to hear that because I feel like that is definitely not where the takes are uh are going right now but I think what's interesting now is what you know Scott you just described with the Jazz that they're able to do all of this because of Rudy Gobert he is their defensive system and because of that they're able to build an offense around him so you know uh you have to hand out an MVP every year is Gobert right now the MVP of the Utah Jazz Oh, absolutely. He's, he's the reason we can have nice things. And uh, to add to your point, Evan, I kind of agree because the things that j- the Bucks are tweaking are traits that we associate with like AD or BAM, where it's like you have an answer for uh, every style of offense you play against. And that's a reason to be excited, I think. Whereas the Jazz, they just kind of, their defense in those situations is a shrug emoji. Let's just outscore the team with threes. 
and I think a big part of the Bucks being able to change that scheme is swapping out Robin Lopez for Bobby Portis. And I, I mean, before this year, I would have never made the argument that Bobby Portis is even in the realm of a defender that Robin Lopez is. I still think Robin Lopez is a tremendous drop room protecting defender that's nice to have on your team. But Portis allows you to do a little bit more of that scrambling. He can close out a lot better on the perimeter. He can switch around if he needs to. And, you know, he can protect the rim. I wouldn't say he's particularly great at it, uh, given if he's playing the center. I would say relative to other centers, he's probably below uh, league center average, but everything else he brings to the table, maybe that, uh, just like I was talking about with Bam and and Anthony Davis, maybe that's just going to be more valuable in the playoffs than it is in the regular season. And I think this brings the conversation kind of full circle in the sense that I think we probably all agree that Robin Lopez is a superior defender to Bobby Portis in, in like a vacuum context here. But just like you said, adding Bobby Portis, who is not frequently recognized as like a quote unquote plus defender, like we talked about before, has given the defense a a new injection of versatility in a way that has kind of raised their ceiling to me. Um, And plus he, you know, he gives you more on the offensive end too. So um, I think that just goes to show that skill-based analysis is really important here and skill-based assessment of of players and scouting is really important because you, it would be surprising to me if you told me, just like you said, like we're going to swap Robin Lopez with Bobby Portis and our defense is going to improve. But you know, Bud has finally leaned into the calls to to introduce some versatility, um, and now we just need him to play his guys enough minutes in the playoffs. Yeah, and along with Portis, I really I'm interested to see how the Bucks are going to integrate PJ Tucker into their defense now because he does that sort of thing where you know he kind of looked like he was washed in Houston this year and. Can't blame the guy. I would probably start losing a little bit of morale, too, if I was in that uh, team context. But given life with the Milwaukee Bucks now, uh, I I would love to see what Bud tries to do with him and how much he's able to revitalize the defense, too, in the same sort of way that Portis has. Yeah, because I'm glad you brought up what Portis unlocks for them, Evan, because after my friend listened to the Bucks podcast that Cody and I did, he was like, I refuse to believe that Bobby Portis can be this much of a difference maker on defense. And I was kind of saying it's not really him. It's that he's like the final piece that clicks everything else into place. And therefore he gets all the attention, but you had Giannis, you had, you know, Connaughton, DiVincenzo, Holiday, all guys who could play that switching or scrambling or soft hedge scheme or whatever they want to do with Portis. It's just, they didn't have the linchpin. And And as I often said, the center is kind of, you know, informs what coverages you can and can't play. They didn't have that guy, however good or bad, that just simply unlocked that coverage and let their plus defenders go to work. All right, so I'm getting the sense that we're nearing the end here, so I want to slip in one more hypothetical question. And, you know, I didn't really ask you guys ahead of time. I guess it's in the it's in our outline. We do have an outline that just we kind of jump all over the place, but um, here's my question. If you had to build a defense where you replicated one defender five times in the NBA right now, which player would you choose to replicate five times to make the best defense in the NBA? I think that's a really tough question. Um, My heart wants to say McCall Bridges, but the rim protection wouldn't be there. And the kind of on-ball defense of really strong wing initiators probably wouldn't be there just due to the physicality elements. Um, To me, I think I would probably go with Ben Simmons just because he can defend one through four and maybe five if he's given the opportunity. Um, he can switch easily and play off ball in a way that you're going to create some offense from from replicating him five times. I mean, that would just be so chaotic to play against on defense, but I'd love to hear everybody else's answer for this question because I am not really firm on that take. I haven't had thought about it too much, but uh, I think first inclination is that's what I'd go with just due to kind of the um, the havoc he causes and, and multiplying that by five would be pretty in- intense to watch. I'm going to, we just talked about him. I'm going to, I'm going to say Giannis just cause I'm okay foregoing some of that lack of like elite on ball defeat defense, just to have guys swatting shots at the rim every which way. Um, yeah. Giannis for me. Stan Van Gundy is smiling. Build a fucking wall of Giannis Antetokounmpo's. I love it. I think I'm going to have to go Giannis here too. Although I really want to give some love to Draymond. I just think he's he's kind of lost a step, but he's a brilliant defensive mind. And just for fun, I would love to see five TJ McConnells. I want to see what would happen with that. Okay. Uh, luckily for everyone else, we don't have to see five TJ McConnells um, on the court together. But let us know your thoughts about this episode. We want this to be more of like a back and forth than us telling you about defense because 
that's not as fun. You know, we don't have all the answers and we're just trying to learn more about defense to further inform how we watch and uh, how we appraise it. So yeah, that's going to be the podcast. Definitely got getting back to like the more philosophical ones. We'll probably do a team breakdown soon. I like kind of alternating this way. Um, Thank you for all the support on Apple podcasts. We only need 12 more for Evan to unearth three of his worst takes. And believe it or not, he does have a few, but he's saving them for them. So yeah, enjoy uh, college and professional basketball this week and have a good rest of your day.